Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Literacy Network, Marfan Foundation, Military Child Education Coalition. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. This is the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. My guest today is a man named Donald Summers. No, he is not related to the late, great Donna Summers. <laughs> Though I have to tell you, when I look down and read his name, my head Im- immediately goes to Donna Summers for some reason. But anyway, Donald Summers does have some potential similarity to Donna Summers in that he is going to dance through some really different concepts. And as you know, Donna Summers, the singer, was a disco maven. And some people called her the disco queen. Well, Donald Summers has a book out called Scaling Altruism. And in it, he promises to deliver some information and some concepts that may have us dancing in our seats. And so I couldn't wait to get the opportunity to speak with him about his book. Donald is also the founder and CEO of Altruist Partners. And his book, Scaling Altruism, a proven pathway for accelerating nonprofit growth and impact is something that we're going to find out a lot about on this show. Donald, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Art, thanks for having me. And also thank you for the important work you already do to drive more growth and impact in the nonprofit sector. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you. Donald, You've been at this for a while. So let's get into your background a little bit. You've been working at this book you mentioned for at least a decade, but you've been doing other things as well. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I grew up very suspicious of business and and saddened by the problems created by extractive finance capitalism to kind of be a little academic grew up in a family full of business people and was very idealistic. And I always thought that I wanted to try to make the world a better place and not just in the words of, you know, I was an English major and in the words of William Wordsworth, the great romantic poet, he says, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. 
And I wanted to think about a, a pathway in life that gave. In the words of Christ, generosity, Buddha, Muhammad, the, all our great thinkers talk about generosity and, and altruism. And I've always been infected by that. Long story short, after a career as a teacher, I got to graduate school and got my first exposure to business tools, law, finance, planning, strategy. And I said, oh my goodness, this is how the world works. What if we could use these tools for good? And that kicked off a career of working on the business side of the social sector, first as a fundraiser and then as a foundation CEO. And I was able to marry the discipline and the practices of the private sector and entrepreneurial growth with all of the the wonderful people, the transformational programs and the natural uh, strengths of the, the social sector. So for the last two decades or so, I've led a small boutique consulting firm that seeks to look at nonprofits as any other type of organization. We don't confuse our tax status with our business model. Yes, there's a very big cultural gap between the for and the nonprofit sector. There's lots of good reasons for that. But we say, hey, you're a, you're a group of people that are trying to accomplish a goal and you want to, you got to grow and solve a problem. That's the same sort of framing that drives any business and any organization. So we learned all about what works and what they teach in business school, not what they teach in the schools of public policy and education and social work, but what they teach in the business school. And we translated all that over into the social sector. And there's a lot of translation that needed to be done. but And it was a very difficult path. But after years of, of testing and development and lots of trial and error and lots of mistakes, we stuck to it. And a little while ago, about Five, six years ago, the methodology really stabilized, and then I started working on a book. So it's my goal now, after working one-on-one with nonprofits, where we've been able to catalyze tremendous growth and impact. We have some of the most exciting successes in the social sector today, we're very proud to say. We want to take and and open source that methodology and say, here's everything we learned. It's in a book. And Not only is it in the book, it also comes with the tools, the templates, the frameworks, as close to paint by numbers as you can get. It's not easy, but we're trying to get it out there and and spread the word so organizations can run more effectively, make the world a better place. Donors can be more educated about where to invest their charitable dollars. Funders can really understand more about organizational development, and hopefully we'll give it to graduate students in all those schools of social work and education and public policy to say, hey, here are the tools you need to enter, the the practical tools you need to enter the social space. So it's a little bit about my background, a little bit what what we've done and why I'm talking to you today. I want to evangelize this toolkit because it works and we just want to spread the word and give it to people that are making the world a better place. Okay, great. So I have to start out now by suggesting that we're already starting to squirm in our seats a little bit. We're already starting to dance in our seats because for many people, there is a distinct difference between a for-profit business and a charity. So are you saying, and correct me if I'm overstating this, that the distinctions are overblown, 
they don't exist or that there are some that exist and you respect those, but have taken your information from business. And as you say, you have translated it. So what I guess I'm asking is what differences don't really matter, if, if that's possible to say. What differences do matter and you've translated? And then we'll leave everything else to what you believe are similar organizations, no difference between business and nonprofit. How would you react to that? Well, there's a lot more in common between the social sector and the private sector than there are differences. Now, we are social people. We're social creatures, human beings, and we love to form clubs and tribes and talk about how we're different. In this case, the differences between the for-profit and the nonprofit sector, I believe, are overblown. Okay. And destructive. One of the first thinkers to really raise this to a level of public consciousness is Dan Pallotta in his book, his myth-breaking book or his TED Talk. And I was inspired by him when I learned, when I first met him in 2007. And since that time, I talk about the myth of uniqueness. Nonprofit leaders are well-meaning people who are trying their best. Not all of them, but many of them actually suffer from the illusion that nonprofits are special types of organizations and that the principles and practices of for-profit business management do not apply. It's a powerful myth. It's repeated by many credible voices, and it routinely bamboozles even respected business experts and seasoned executives on nonprofit boards. I've spent 20 years delivering business fundamentals to nonprofits, and I know they work. And when nonprofits bottle them and get over the distaste of using them, amazing things happen. And I want to talk about why that cultural gap exists. The business methodology came out of an oppressive framework. Frederick Winslow Taylor, the father of modern management, used business methodologies in place of the whip on his factory floor. And I will be blunt, sir. It was a proxy. We had emancipation, which was quickly replaced by management. And from Henry Ford to, to we all know of, a, of the extractive practices of, of business. However, these are not immoral tools inherently. They're amoral. They can be recaptured and delivered for good. And I'm going to, I will close by saying one of the most respected business leaders out there and researchers and academic experts who wrote an amazing book called Good to Great. His name is Jim Collins. Mm -hmm. When he, to give you an example of how powerful the myth of uniqueness is, his book, Good to Great for the Social Sector, why it's a coda, why business thinking is not the answer. He says things that are completely wrong. He says, for example, and I'll quote him, business executives can more easily fire people and equally important, they can use money to buy talent. Most social sector leaders, on the other hand, must rely on people underpaid relative to the private sector or rely on volunteers. Big incentives are simply not possible. Every fact that he presented is incorrect. Take a look at the high pay given to football coaches and nonprofits. If some nonprofits are hospitals and universities. They're powerful multi-billion dollar corporations with people getting too much money, I would argue, for the football coaches, right? 
Especially the ones that aren't winning. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Particularly like the, the Texas A&M, right? They had a $70 million payout for their nonprofit. So, and there's other people saying that there's founders of financial groups. I'm going to leave them unnamed, but they say things that generally accepted accounting principles don't apply or, oh, you can't pay board members. So we call it confusing your tax status with your business model. The principles of developing teams, of managing analytics, of getting organizations to scale, of good governance, of creating trust, of creating adaptation, all of these things apply. Some of the most important business planning, right? Evaluation, analytics, the nonprofit, because of the damaged brand of business practice, which is completely understandable, because of the revulsion many social sector leaders feel when you start talking with MBA jargon, and it's understandable. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I want to start a movement where that's already been started. Take a look at City Year. Take a look at KIPP. Take a look at Teach for America. These are MBAs run these nonprofits. They are scaling, doing good work, but they're the, really in the minority. You have charities like Murdoch Trust, and you have a, a group called um, New Profit and the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. There's venture philanthropy movements that are creating high performing, scaling nonprofits using all these tools, but they're small. They're not publicized. This stuff isn't getting taught in schools. And they're much more powerful, popular voices repeating these myths of uniqueness. And particularly philanthropy is, is part of the challenge too. Other organizations use dollars to keep charities begging for more money. So there's a real systematic challenge here around the myth of Okay, so wait a minute. So let me let me just say that what you said about tools, I wouldn't argue that they were somehow should be distinguished, make us distinguish business from a charity. I mean, I know plenty of charities that are using metrics and our evaluation and and you know, they that's just part of what they do. I mean, I think it seems to me that those are universal tools, right? I, don't, I wouldn't say it has to be one organization versus another one applying them. I mean, they're easily applicable to each. And I don't necessarily agree that we should call these business tools. They're just tools. Love that. Couldn't agree with you more. They're organizational performance tools. Yes, exactly. So any organization of any type is going to want to measure its performance to some extent, right? And they're going to want to make sure that they have goals and objectives. They want to make sure that they have people that are responsible for them and accountabilities and trustworthy. All of those things you said certainly apply to almost any institution, government entity, nonprofit or for-profit. I couldn't agree with you more, sir. So maybe maybe we we are in agreement then that these are just tools. These tools are, as you might say, agnostic. They don't really care what kind of institution. They just want to be applied to make an activity more effective and able to reach its goals, right? So we don't then have to somehow promote 
businesses. That's where I'm trying to get to. I'm not yeah. trying to promote a business over a nonprofit. I'll take my nonprofit any day over it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. So it's just the hairs on my neck get a little bit out of joint, right? Because we want to say business people are somehow better than nonprofit. I don't agree with you. I 100% agree with you, sir. That is not my intention. If I implied that, I am off base. No, no. It may be just how I'm interpreting it. So I'll take that too. So, all right. So we agree there. Tools are just tools. Business, nonprofit, we can use tools to help us work. And we don't have to get into this contest over what form necessarily works better. That's going to be dependent on whoever decides to use that form. And one other thing I would say is that in the case of a for-profit business, sometimes they fail too. Oh, they're as badly managed as any other type of organization. Amen to that. Sometimes they they fail a lot. <laughs> they fail a lot because right? you have to run it well. You have to use the tools well in order to succeed. Doesn't matter what content and. I don't think you have to be MBAs to use these tools because I see people every day using. So that's another thing. Great if you are MBA because I'm teaching people at Columbia University School of Nonprofit Management and we're giving them tools and they're not going to be MBAs, but they're going to be great leaders. Catalyzing more rigor Mm -hmm. in our nonprofit programs and educational institutions is one of my goals. And Art, the devil's in the details on this. We can agree in principle. Okay, talk to me some more about details. Well, you know, when people say, oh, I've got a strategic plan, or I've got a a business plan, or I've got an organizational plan, and I've looked at thousands of these documents, and I can count on one hand the number that are ready to pass due diligence with a sophisticated investor. They usually are what we call, and this is true with for-profit businesses too. Again, I'm not singling out. This is a human challenge and an organizational challenge. A lot of these documents are good from far and far from good. They've got holes in them. And even after you have a plan, planning, as any executive will tell you, is about 5% of it. The other 95% is execution. And that involves change management, adaptive mindsets, agility, data-fueled strategy. So it's these execution tools, not just the planning and the tools themselves. And like many nonprofits are run by subject matter experts. They don't have on their leadership teams proven entrepreneurs and people who are organizational performance experts. Some do, those that do perform better. But what I'm talking about is the deprivileging the dismissal of this sort of organizational capability and acumen as important because of the fear, and particularly this is true with fundraisers. Talk to any fundraiser about how they're just put in a silo and have to like generate the money and the board's hesitant to raise money. There's a love-hate relationship with funding and most organizations are under-resourced. Again, Jim Collins, the top leader, says you can't pay your people. So again, there's a lot of myths. There's a lot of lack of awareness of the criticality of these tools alongside subject matter expertise. There's a lot of gaps in awareness around execution and how to really improve. 
And I'd love to hear that you're giving the robust tools in your program and the writing of that. My book is really meant in part to be a curriculum for aspiring nonprofit leaders. So they have that management toolkit. You don't need an MBA. You need to know how to produce a pro forma. You need to know what you know, how to read financial statements. You need to understand how to run a pipeline and how to run analytics and produce an executive dashboard. You need to understand revenue strategy, both earned, contributed, and invested. Mm -hmm. You need to understand how to pitch, right? You need to understand governance best practices. There's a lot of stuff in there that's not taught that I'd call fugitive knowledge in the social sector. Some organizations have it that really prize it and they perform well. So I'll close my speech here with a little bit of evidence. Okay. We measure, when we talk to a client, we've done this over a hundred times. We've come up with a measurement of 50 drivers of organizational performance, growth, and impact. Things that if you have, we believe they're not just correlated with organizational performance, they cause it. These are the drivers, and we measure them and say, do you have this? And I'll give you some of them. You have to be able to compete in the market for top talent. You, got, you cannot put martyrdom in your compensation policy. If you're not paying for top people, you're flying on a hope and a prayer, right? If you think martyrdom belongs, if you're like Jim Collins, oh, we just can't pay people, that's a myth. Now, wait a minute. Jim doesn't feel that way. But okay, he wrote it. In, he wrote it down. It's I got the yeah, quote but... from. You know, it's shocking. So, and Dan Pilata goes on to this. I'm not alone in this. So, take for example, Dan, Dan is a friend, and we've had lots of conversations about this. So I, <laughs> so you measure all fifty of those, and you can come up with a performance index. Yeah. Okay, you can say from zero to a hundred. Here's your organization's capability to perform. Most nonprofits on this on this index, and you can debate the validity of the of the metrics and, and the index itself, we find most nonprofits score between 25 and 35 percent. Okay. And these include very large, sophisticated organizations. We've done it with organizations with eight and nine okay. figures of revenue, not just small. And so it's surprising that we we see the 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 practice and, and the gap. So yes, they've got plans, but they're missing key pieces. There's no accountability, transparency. Often there's pathological cultures at play. You know all the problems. Nonprofits aren't the only ones that have that. And your point is well accepted. For-profits have it too. But what's unique about this is it's finally, we have a toolkit that organizations can follow. All of the, the management the knowledge, the tools are all in various unconnected domains. You go back and you look at podcast. They, here's a fundraising expert. Here's a governance expert. Here's a marketing expert. Here's an evaluation expert. And leaders play whack-a-mole. They know they got problems, but they don't know where to start. There's actually a sequence, an order of operations. You got to get one thing right before you can do the next thing, right? To raise money, you've got to have all of these critical enabling factors. And to create those, you have to have other critical enabling factors. It's And you get it wrong, you're going to struggle. So what we're trying to do is give clarity and give the actual pathway to, to nonprofit leaders. So then they can, they at least have a foundation on which to work. 
And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Many charities offer charity auctions as a way of helping them raise money. If you participate in this and purchase an item, sometimes people have questions about whether those purchases are deductible as charitable gifts for federal income tax purposes. In general, the rule of thumb is the the price that you pay at the auction, only the portion that exceeds the fair market value of the item, in other words, what it normally would sell at, would be deductible, not the full price. The other thing you have to be careful about is when there are some items that really don't have a clear fair market value. And this is maybe true for especially for works of art, where the actual value may be the auction price itself. And it may be that none of it's deductible because the auction price is the true value of what your purchase is. If you have any questions about this, see IRS Publication 526. And also, of course, seek a tax advisor or a CPA for help in making sure that you're taking the proper deduction for these types of purchases. Well, let me just ask about your company, the name primarily, because as I mentioned to you before we joined the air, the the term altruism has a currency in the sector right now. There's discussion around the, the concept of effective altruism. Are you talking about that or are you talking about something else? What are we talking about with altruism? And why did you choose that as the name of your book and your company? Uh, it's the guiding principle of so many wonderful people around the world. You know, when you look at our, our evolution, our trajectory as a species, we're inherently selfish and greedy. And, you know, whether you listen, whether your leaders are Christ or Bertrand Russell or Plato or, you know, the the world's best thinkers or have all taught us to try to rise beyond our own uh, self-interest and and work for others. And that's the founding principles of of charity and generosity or what drive your organization. I believe in those principles. I believe we need to systematize them. You know, we have finance capitalism that is primarily extractive. Right. Right. And we have the heating and the air conditioning on in the world. We have finance capitalism that's creating all these problems. And then we layer over a Band-Aid, a charity on top of that. And it's a mess and it's not going the right direction. I believe that we can reform our economies and build altruism into our finance capitalism. It's fixable. I don't want to throw the system out. I'm not a revolutionary. I think we can fix what we got. It's and we know it works. Right. So that's what driving me. Altruism is the same word in 36 languages. Right. It's a very common global brand. It's same thing in Finnish. Right. You use the word altruism around the world. People know what it is. And to me, it it encompasses the philosophy. Now, effective altruism is a very specific academic movement. Yeah, that's what I wanted to get at. They're lovely people. But I got heartburn with that movement. Okay. It's primarily academic, and I, I, there's a lot of debates about stuff. I'd like to see those debates convert to action. I'd like to see those keyboard altruists get out there and volunteer for a soup kitchen or help the vulnerable or put their ideas into practice. So my version of altruism is informed by practice and, and trying to make the world a better place. And I'm 
Uh, yes, there's a room for academic discussions, but I think a lot of that is too much of the that discussion is sterile and intellectual. Yeah, but there are people who are practicing it. I mean, there are people who believe that if you identify 10 causes, the one you should give your money to is the one that will give you the most outcome, right? So, you know, you, you could say, if you stack, put curing cancer up there, to them, that might not be the best place to put your money because if you bought a whole bunch of nets in Africa, you're going to save a lot more people from malaria. So they would say putting money in cancer might not make the most sense because you could save a lot more lives putting that same amount of money and getting everybody in, in Africa. So there are people who practice that. Or those same malaria nets might be used as fishing nets and end up poisoning the local water. But well, the- there's that too. <laughs> so you got it's a very complicated situation. It is you know. indeed. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, sir, on the the principles of of effective altruism. Put your, you know, we talk about social return on investment, best bang for the buck, hundred percent. I'm in violent agreement. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying that that's how I think they see it. And I'm sure somebody would correct me on that if I'm not getting it accurately. One wonderful organization called that's doing their best. I think they've got some methodological challenges, but GiveWell.org. Sure, GiveWell. Mm-hmm. They've done a wonderful job of, of applying that. They do good stuff. They're talking about a, a niche audience. You also are fundamentally an effective altruist. You try to provide a measurement for charitable effectiveness and provide needed transparency and accountability for the sector. So all of these principles I'm 100% in line with. Absolutely. When you have the, the culture in the, particularly the culture, let's talk about the culture of fundraising, where the nonprofit fundraisers, there's a very strong current of being socialized to lead with emotion, to lead with affect. And to give. And, and, you know, years ago, the international development organizations would put, they called it flies in the eyes, little kids with flies in their eyes and, you know, would spur people to, to give emotionally without thinking. And we believe that the most capital can be raised and the people can be engaged uh, most effectively if we appeal to their intellect and not their fear and, and emotion and so we're just trying to create our own version of effective altruism. And we're trying to create, help charities articulate their business and their economic and their social case with facts and evidence and concise data and help them tell their story in a way that's more compelling to sophisticated audiences with lots of money to give them. Or you can do an emotional appeal that'll get people to spend $5 and, and do a, the ice bucket challenge, which was great. It was a wonderful viral campaign, but most social media campaigns aren't very poor use of time and effort for the charities that run them. They're very difficult to scale. So we're trying to just provide a little bit more of an organizational rationale be, to use logic and, and proven practice and use evidence and data to inform a charitable practice, not just passion and emotion. You need both. Yeah, you need both. So I would just make one suggestion that I think we're all altruists that do this work. Yes. I just want to distinguish what we do a little bit from some who do other things. So I I would not say, for instance, you were wrong if you chose to support 
a particular organization. Uh, but what I want you to do is take time to understand what you're supporting. <laughs> That's what I want you to do. Right. So if you choose to take your money and give it to an organization that's not performing well, or but at least you should know that. That's all. So I'm just feeling that I don't have a point of view about what you should support. My only point of view is you should know what you're supporting. You shouldn't just be giving your money away without knowing something. I love, I love that point. But that begs the question, why do people give? Oh, yeah. And I'll let you answer that question because you're the guest of the show. But we talked about <laughs> that a lot. But go ahead. And people have different reasons. That's right. Of course. It's very different. If you ask my wife, if you ask my wife, she'll tell you, I'm just trying to get into heaven. Yeah. So if she sees somebody on the street and they look like they need a couple dollars, she'll open up her purse and give it to them. That's what they're taught. Doesn't matter what happens to, doesn't matter what that person does, that's not her problem. That person can go buy drugs, whatever, that, that's fine with her. It's not, I should say it's, it's not fine with her, but she says it's not for her to determine what happens next. It's for her to give. So that's kind of how she sees it. And, you know, we have these debates at home about that. And I tell her, you know what I do for a living, right? You know, I try to make sure. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but, you know, I got to do what I got to do. So to some extent, and I'll, I'll probably give you this too. We may be pushing the ball, the snowball up the hill when it comes to getting people to support things based less on emotion and more on data and facts, right? Mm -hmm. Because the reality is when I hear about a cause that moves me, I am like more likely to give, and there's some data that shows this too, I'm more likely to give with less information and an emotional story than I am with more information and less emotional story. That I, I agree agree with you hundred percent there. You'll give a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars or five hundred. Will you give a million? No, we're not gonna give a million. We're not gonna give a million. But the everyday we're talking about the everyday people. You good point you make. The more you give, the more attention you're gonna pay to where it's going, right? So there's a cutoff for everyone. I don't know what that number is for each person, but we all have that cutoff where our mind starts to kick in and say, you know what, I I need to invest a little more time in making a decision here. Sometimes that means you don't make the decision. Yep. Sometimes it means you get more engaged because you find out things that excite you even more. So yeah, we're pushing a ball, a snowball up the hill and that's okay. We got to do that. Let me uh, give you another flavor of that. Yeah. We run different campaigns for different people and there's different strategies and different tactics. So a high performing charity Let's say, and there's lots of different ways to make money. It's really understanding the financing. You're talking about individual uh, small dollar donations. Yeah. Emotion is the deciding factor and organizations should have a compelling story to make it that decision made. They should also have a much more robust, specific data-driven appeal to government agencies, to high net worth individuals, around investments and say, hey, we're not talking about $100 here. We're talking about something that needs to be studied and, and there's a lot of risk with giving away that amount of capital. Mm -hmm. 
So you, you use the right tool for the job, right? Yep. Half of all charitable income comes from earned revenue, contracts, mm-hmm. grants, entrepreneurial initiatives. That's another type of financing. Hospital fees. <laughs> so we talk about the complex nonprofit revenue landscape and how you have to be equipped for all of it. The challenge that we see is many nonprofits remain stuck in the space where they do a great job with the passion and the storytelling and the affective appeals. That'll get you small dollars. It'll get you occasional grant, but it'll put you on a subsistence lifestyle. You have to have that more robust evidence-based argument to go after, generally speaking, larger investments that will, you know, you get 95% of your dollars from 5% of your supporters. So just like hospitals and universities and these high growth nonprofits have a sophisticated financing mix and can appeal to many people with strong, compelling emotional arguments, they can also go after the big investments just on Monday. And this happens to me all the time. And it's why I get to die happy. I got a call from one of our clients. She runs a small charity that's been around for a hundred years in a community over here that serves low-income families with food and educational assistance. They've had a million dollar budget for years. We got involved that turned into a hockey stick and she just called me up and said, I just got a yes on a $3 million charitable investment and we're on our way to 50 million. Fantastic. We see again and again when charities use these tools and layer it on what they're already doing they can go after the, the model that's out there is major gifts, capital campaigns, and so forth. Those processes, we're, we're basically updating them. We're bringing them into the 21st century with a more sophisticated approach uh, that's a little bit more, uh, that's easier to communicate, and it's more powerful. So we're in agreement, and I think it's important to say where these tools apply and where they don't apply. Okay. Well, look. We got about a minute. I'm going to give you a minute to just sort of sum up why you think we should all go out and get this book in the social sector. And we're going to wrap up the show. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. I'd love to talk more with you at length. And, and I have a great deal to learn from you and, and your work. But I'd like to say that you know we've been doing this a long time. We've deployed this toolkit with many organizations. It works. It's shown to drive dramatic improvements in organizational performance, revenue, and the ability of these organizations to solve problems and make the world a better place to help people. It's changed the lives of millions of people around the world in areas from land conservancy to toxic exposure to prenatal womb environments to foster children, bioplastics. doesn't matter what the mission is. The toolkit works. And we're delighted to share it with people to see if it can help them. It's not perfect. It's not for everybody. And it sure isn't easy, but nothing about social impact is. And we just hope that we're living up to our own brand name and our own aspirations to be altruist. And we're just trying to make the world a better place as effectively as we can. Well, you've been listening to Donald Summers, who is the founder and CEO of Altruist Partners. He's written a book called Scaling Altruism, A Proven Pathway for Accelerating Nonprofit Growth and Impact. Now, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, I hope 
that you will subscribe because you're going to want to get each one of our new episodes as they come out each week, each Tuesday. And there's a whole stream of episodes that we've posted on all the major podcast platforms that you have free access to. So we want you to subscribe, post a comment, let us know what you feel about what we're doing and pass it on, pass it on to friends and colleagues so that they can benefit from this as well. And I just want to thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you back here again next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.